So this week I came across an article over at The Atlantic called What It's Like to Learn You're Going to Die. Cheery article, right? The author says this, all of us live with the potential for death at any moment. All of us project ahead a trajectory of our life. That is, we anticipate a certain lifespan within which we arrange our activities and plan our lives. And then abruptly, we may be confronted with a crisis, whether by illness or accident, our potential trajectory is suddenly changed. In the article, she calls it the existential slap in the face. That moment when a dying person first comprehends on a gut level that death is close. See, on an intellectual level, everyone in here, if I asked you, went around, said, Man, do you, are you going to die one day? Everyone would say, yeah, death, death comes for us all. But we live each day pushing that truth as far from our conscious thoughts as possible. And in a sense, we live like we're never going to die. Not only that, but all along the way, our day-to-day lives often feel like we're just objects being hurtled through time, constantly colliding with other objects, with the changing circumstances which continue to alter and change the trajectory of our life. So what I want to ask this morning is, how do we survive that existential slap in the face? How do we avoid feeling like our day-to-day life is just being hurtled through time and space like a pinball? Bing, 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 going from each place to another. I mean, don't we all have this sense inside of us that we were made for something more than that? If this life is all there is, if we die and then become worm food, then there is no escaping feeling like a pinball when life doesn't go your way. If this life is all there is, at the end, when you face your own mortality, you can't avoid that full brunt of the slap in the face. See, there's a principle at work in the world. Your anchor of hope will determine your trajectory. It's this principle that's underlying everything in the world, that whatever your hope is, it will determine the trajectory of your life. Today in our passage, Jesus is going to set the trajectory. He's going to change it for all of us. And he's going to give us a trajectory that's not like living like a pinball where you are bounced from one side to another. It's a kind of trajectory that enables us to endure our trials and ultimately leads to glory. And when you have glory as your trajectory, not even death can slap you in the face. So let's look together at Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 29, and we'll see the trajectory of glory, the trial to glory, and we'll even get a taste of glory. Look with me at verse 2. God's word says this, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them high up a mountain by themselves. See, Mark tells us it's been six days since Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. And if you were with us or listened to it on the podcast from last week, they've been on this road trip to Jerusalem for the last time. Jesus told them in no uncertain terms that this trip is going to end with his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And after Jesus gives them this hard-to-swallow truth, he begins to teach them about what authentic discipleship looks like. He said these words, if anyone would come after him, he needs to deny himself, pick up his cross, and count the cost. And now on this trip, they make a pit stop. It says that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up to a high mountain by themselves. See, what you need to know about Peter, James, and John is they form Jesus' inner circle, 
They're, they're, his, they're his closest confidants. He's been grooming them over these last several years for leadership in the church. And earlier in Mark, when Jesus heals the little girl who died, Jairus' daughter, if you remember, it was Peter, James, and John that he invited into the room to witness this resurrection. See, he's preparing them for the roles that they'll have later in their ministry. And the Bible tells us they go high up on this mountain. Another thing you need to know as you're reading your Bible, you're going to see mountains are these really prominent and significant places all throughout the Bible. They're places where God and humanity encounter each other, and they're often places of significant revelation. I think there's something about mountains. When we see them, we, kind of, we, we almost stand in their glory. When we look at them, it's like heaven and earth kind of meet halfway. So they go up there. Look what it says in verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, talking about Jesus. And his clothes became radiant and intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. See, on this mountain, Mark says, Jesus was transfigured before him. Now you may be thinking, I have no idea what that means. Let's dig in a little deeper. The word for transfigured here is the Greek word metamorpho, which is where we get our word metamorphosis. You can use that this week in your conversations to sound really smart and educated. See, it says that Jesus was changed. And Peter and James and John could tell that something had happened to them. See, Mark has his source, Peter. Mark knows what he knows about this gospel and what he's writing about because Peter is his informant. Peter's the one helping him um, write this gospel. And so something happened up there and they know it. He changed. And it says that there was a glow about him, a glory. And this glory and radiance coming from Jesus is so intense that it even changes his clothes. They start to radiate and they became white. Mark says not even the best dry cleaners or tied with OxyClean could get them bleached this white. And we don't know the details as to what physically or maybe even metaphysically was going on. But what we know is that there was an outward, visible transformation of his appearance. That's why Mark uses the word metamorphosis. It's the same word we use to talk about a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Something has happened. Now, what he's not saying is this. Jesus, it looks like you had a great night's sleep, man. Or Jesus, did you do something different with your hair? I mean, it's looking spot on today. Now, what he's saying is that something happened on that mountain, and the adjectives that he uses to describe it are radiant and intense. There was a glory and radiance to Jesus like they had never seen before. And so at this point, we're tempted to ask, what happened? Like scientifically, break it down for me, what happened? But if you had been there, you would have had a hard time explaining what was going on as well. But more important than what physically happened is, what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus was transfigured before him? Now, what I want to do is move through the rest of the mountaintop experience so that we get all of the details. And then at the end of that, I'm going to kind of bring it all together to see what it means. Look at the next verses. It says, and there appeared. So they're up on this mountain. Jesus has been transfigured. And then who should appear? Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you and Moses and Elijah. And it says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
So as the disciples are taking in this glorified Jesus, Elijah and Moses appear with them on the mountain. You gotta know, these are two of the greatest heroes in the Bible. They're hall of famers for sure. Moses was this mediator for the people who played the role of prophet, priest, and king in the early days of uh, of Israel's history. He was the one who had delivered the people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. He was was single-handedly, God used him to topple one of the most powerful empires to ever rule on the face of the earth. He was the prophet who led the people down the path of truth and righteousness. He was the priest who taught them grace and how to make atonement for their sins. And he was the king who brought order and civility to their society. And Moses was the one who led them into the promised land. Now take Elijah. Elijah boldly fought the prophets of Baal and showed the people of God that idols always disappoint. He taught the people that if you worship idols, you will become just like them. And he remained faithful to God even in the midst of a a nation where there was widespread apostasy and widespread unbelief. And it was prophesied that there would be this Elijah to come. And when we saw him, we would know that the kingdom of God was coming. Now, if you take in this whole scene from the disciples' perspective, it's pretty overwhelming. I mean, Jesus has just been transfigured. These two hall of famers just show up on the mountain. And Mark tells us that Peter did not know what to say. But if you know anything about Peter, you know, not knowing what not to say never stops him, right? He's a verbal processor. I identify with Peter because I am also a verbal processor as well. Some people process internally. And then after reflection, they express their well-formed thoughts. I don't know anything about that life. (laughs) Verbal processors like me process everything out loud in real time. And so Peter's just kind of taking it on in and he's like, Hey, teacher, it's, it's just really good that we're all here. And he says, uh, uh, so why don't, I, why don't we like set up shop here, make a tent, make a base camp, and I'll put a tent for you and Elijah and for Moses. You see, Peter's trying to take in this whole scene of glory, but there's something about when you're in a place of glory that makes you want to stay, right? When something is so good, you don't want it to end. You want it to linger. And so he's just kind of saying, man, maybe we should, maybe we should have a camp out here on this mountain. Now look what happens in verse seven. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Okay, so as the scene's unfolding, this cloud now overshadows them. And this cloud is the manifestation of God's presence and glory. And again, if you look throughout the Bible, you'll see this isn't the first time a cloud has shown up to overshadow a physical space in the Bible. It was this cloud that led the people out of Egypt into the wilderness when they were delivered out of Egypt. The cloud also overshadowed the tabernacle and the temple after they were dedicated to Lord to show that God's presence was dwelling among the people. The cloud overshadowed Mount Sinai and Moses when God gave them the law, his instructions to them of how a whole unholy people would live peaceably with a holy God. In fact, when the angel came to tell Mary that she would become pregnant, the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of God, same word, will overshadow you. And now the Holy Spirit has come to overshadow this mountain. 
And out of this cloud, a voice appears. It's God the Father. And he's declaring his delight and approval of his son. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. See, here we have God the Father speaking blessing over God the Son with the Holy Spirit presiding over the whole scene. If you've been tracking with us in Mark, you should be thinking about the baptism of Jesus, right? When, it's that moment when the heavens open up. It's this scene where like heaven and earth are joined together once again. Jesus is going down into the water and the Holy Spirit descends on this whole scene like a dove and God the Father comes out and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And here the Father says, now you need to listen to him. See, Jesus has been telling his disciples, he's been starting to tell them that the son of man is going to suffer. But that's very hard for them to hear. See, we're prone not to listen to hard and inconvenient truths. So God the Father is speaking out loud and they're hearing him say, you need to listen to him. And they're gonna need to hear this over and over because the road to glory is always paved through the valley of suffering. So what does this whole scene mean? If you take this whole mountaintop experience together, I think it affirms Jesus' divinity, it reveals his humanity, and it also shows his role as the Messiah. See, that, the Father's pronouncement and the presence of God the Holy Spirit all speak to the reality that Jesus is fully God. As God's Son, he is of the same substance as God the Father. Just like our children are made from the same DNA, the same substance, whatever it means for us to be human, when we have a child, our children are the same substance. And for Jesus to be God's son means he has the same divine nature as his father. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says it like this, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, and hear this, the exact representation of his being. It's a carbon copy of him. Not only does it reveal his divinity, but it also shows his role as Messiah. See, Moses and Elijah are there to confirm that Jesus is the better deliverer who's able to take the people of God into the better promised land. And he's also able to rid the land of idols and sin once and for all. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Elijah. And they're there handing off the baton to Jesus. And after the transfiguration, the, the transfiguration itself is a glimpse into Jesus's future resurrected and glorious form. Like I said, it also shows Jesus's humanity. See, the temptation here, hang with me, when we see words like radiance and glory is to automatically think deity and divinity only, which of course is true. His glory is divine. But when we think of Jesus, we can't simply think of divinity. At the same time, this transfiguration is actually more about showing Jesus's true humanity. Now, we're so far removed from it today because sin has so utterly marred the image of God in us. But remember, when God created humanity in the first place, he created us to reflect his glory. I love the way one commentator, Mark Horn, puts it. He says, we were always meant to glow but sin has dimmed us. I think that's a very nice way to put it. See, sin has uncreated us 
It's unraveling the image of God. What Jesus is showing us here in the transfiguration is what happens to us when we are recreated. The Bible tells us that Jesus will forever identify with us as a human. Jesus never stops being a human. He is the first fruit of the resurrection. It's not like Jesus ascended to the Father and said, I can't wait to get this flesh off of me. Once he identified with us as a human, it has been his good pleasure to stay that way. And that, friends, is good news. See, the climax of the gospel is not Jesus taking off his humanity, but becoming the true human, the new human, the first fruit. And those who believe and trust in him are joined to Jesus in a way that whatever is true of him becomes true of us. His trajectory to glory becomes our trajectory to glory. Think about it this way. When you step onto a plane, it has a trajectory. It has a destination. And what is true of that plane starts to become true of you, doesn't it? Once that cabin door closes, right, your trajectory is the same as that plane's. When it's at 35,000 feet in the air, guess where you are? 35,000 feet in the air. When it's flying at 500 miles an hour, guess what? So are you. You are hurtling through the air at 500 miles per hour. His trajectory will be our trajectory. His transfiguration is a glimpse into our transfiguration. His metamorphosis will be our metamorphosis. We don't have time to go through it today, but if you're taking notes, write down 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's this dynamic passage where Paul opens up a little bit more to talk about what our future resurrected body will be like because of what happened to Jesus. This transfiguration is a glimpse into our future It is our trajectory. Now let's keep on moving to see the trial. Look with me at verse nine. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So the disciples kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And so they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So after this amazing scene, they come off the mountain. And this stopped me in my tracks this week. Jesus leaves the mountain of glory to face the trial ahead. What that says to us is this. He will not receive the glory without cost. He will have that glory, but it comes after suffering and trial. You see, for now, he has to leave the mountain and the glory behind. The cross always comes before glory. It was the pattern in Jesus' life, and it will also be the pattern in ours. Rather than escaping with Moses and Elijah to glory, Jesus remains here with us to complete his journey to Jerusalem. He tells the disciples, don't tell anyone what they've seen until you've seen me rise from the dead. Again, what they've seen is spectacular and in one sense, altogether unbelievable if you weren't there. So it's this reason why Jesus is saying, man, it's best not to tell people until they have a framework for understanding what has happened. 
It's another reason why the transfiguration points to the resurrection. Jesus told them, don't tell anyone about it until the resurrection. That's, that's, a, that's an interpretive lens for us to understand what was going on in that transfiguration. At the resurrection, when they've seen it come to fruition, then what happened on the mountain will become clear. What is foggy for them right now in light of the resurrection will become crystal clear. Imagine that moment when the other disciples are having a hard time believing that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Peter, James, and John can step in and say, hey guys, remember that pit stop we took a few weeks ago? Something amazing happened. We saw something back there that's like what's happening right now. And Jesus told us to wait to tell you guys until this moment. See, Jesus knows the right timing for this to be fully revealed. And it says that the disciples trusted him. They kept this secret until the proper time. Then it says, Mark tells us, that the disciples didn't understand what Jesus meant by rising from the dead. And I love that this is in there because it's, it's, it's kind of telling us what's happening is as they're processing all these um, suffering predictions in real time. They don't fully understand what it means for someone to be raised from the dead, which is another reason why they probably shouldn't discuss it right now. They're, they don't understand fully what's going on. It's one of those things that'll make sense once they finally see it. Now, I do want to take a quick moment to do a little aside because this is one of those places where we get a really good internal argument for our belief in the resurrection. And as you're out and about and talking with people, you might have some people say, man, how can you believe that? That sounds much more like a fairy tale than it seems like real accounting of history. I mean, how can you really believe that he was raised from the dead? What Mark is showing is that the disciples themselves, previous to the resurrection, at best didn't understand it. And at worst, we're highly skeptical of it happening. And if you flip ahead, spoiler alert, Jesus is crucified and he's raised from the dead. At the, at the crucifixion, all of the disciples are going to scatter. All of them are going to flee like mice when lights are turned on in the room. And so the question comes, what could turn these skeptics into believers? What could change these cowards into men who were willing to die for their beliefs? See, the only thing that accounts for that kind of transformation is that they saw the resurrected Christ. Nothing else makes sense. I mean, you think about it. Up until this point, the disciples have seen Jesus walk on the water. They've seen Jesus tame nature. They've seen Jesus cast out demons, give sight to the blind, heal cripples, raise a little girl from the dead, and yet they still continue to doubt him. They still continue even to rebuke him. Last week, Peter rebuked Jesus. Then he goes to the cross, and they scurry away in fright and abandon him. And if you look at the pages of Scripture and into history, you'll see the disciples died horrible deaths, deaths that could have been avoided if they simply recanted. All they had to do to avoid these awful, painful deaths was deny that Jesus had risen from the dead. If they had said, hey, you know, it was all just a big joke, a long con that got out of hand. You know what? It really was just a figment of our imagination, a silly hope that just went too far. If they had just denied him, they would have been let off the hook. Now, if they were willing to deny and doubt him while he was alive, what could possibly, 
What could they have possibly have seen that would change them? In my estimation, the only thing that could have changed them was that they knew he wasn't dead. Eventually, these disciples are changed because they see a risen Jesus. Now, the Bible does not paint these men as flawless, undoubting heroes. They were men and women, just like you and me, trying to figure it all out. Now, as they go on, they do verbalize a question to Jesus. They ask him, why does Elijah have to come first? And Jesus explained to them that the Elijah was prophesied to come to restore all things. Now, we have to realize this. They're not talking about Elijah coming back from the dead. They're talking about a prophet like Elijah, kind of in the, the spirit of Elijah, in the, the same kind of ministry as Elijah. And as we've seen in Mark's gospel before, John the Baptist is that new Elijah. He was the forerunner to Jesus. In fact, if you look in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus even comes out and says, just in case you're not putting the pieces together, John is the new Elijah. That's a verbatim quote from him. And what we know is that John the Baptist preached a message of reconciliation, just like Elijah did. He was calling people to return to God. He was saying, let's go back to the old faithful roads. Let's turn away from our sin and let's turn towards God. And Jesus tells them that this new Elijah, John, was killed for it. If you remember several weeks ago, a couple months ago, John the Baptist was beheaded and his head was served on a platter at a cocktail party with Herod. And so what he's saying is, look, the forerunner to me, the one who was laying down the road, was killed. And what he's saying is, I'm going down that exact same road. He laid down bricks of suffering and trial, and that's where I'm headed to. We know Jesus is going to be treated with contempt and suffer and be killed because the road to glory is paved with trial and suffering. And for Jesus to achieve that glory, he must be willing to take up his cross. So hear me on this. Just like his trajectory is our trajectory, his trial will be our trial. And this is hard news. We don't like to hear bad news. But remember, before we hear news of our trial, we hear news of our glorious trajectory. It's meant to be that anchor point. It's meant to be that thing to keep us from feeling like pinballs in the midst of trial. We have an anchor point. We have a hope. We have a trajectory of glory. And we can endure the trial because we know how it ends. See, Jesus does not call us to go down a road that he is unwilling to go down first ahead of you. He shows us that if we'll follow him, his trajectory is one of glory and so will ours. And I love the fact that Jesus doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't give us some false expectations. He tells us exactly as it's going to be. In this life, you will face trials and temptations. So let's look at the last verses to see this taste of glory. Now hang with me here. This is a large chunk of scripture, but I want us to hear the whole story of what's happening. Look with me in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Verse 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, 
How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear it with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? The father answered, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, the boy's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Okay, a lot going on in that passage. We're not going to be able to dissect everything but, so I, but, but, uh, but for our purposes today, Jesus and the inner circle return to the disciples, and a crowd is gathered once again. And Mark tells us there's a commotion, an arguing going on. And they ask him, what's been going on? Like, what's, what's, the, what's the trouble? And a man out of the crowd answers, my son, I brought him to you for healing. And no one's been able to do anything about it. You are my only hope. We find out that there's this spirit inside of the boy that makes him go mute and his body go rigid and he convulses and it says that he was even thrown into fire into water and the spirit was trying to kill this child. And this man tells us the disciples weren't able to heal them. So this man says, Jesus, if you can, if you're able, would you please do something about it? And Jesus responds and says, if I can, the matter seems to be with you. I'm willing and I'm able, but do you have faith? And I don't want you to hear this man's response because I think it's brilliant. He says, I believe. Just help my unbelief. See, he's expressing that he's flawed. Saying, I have enough belief to come here, but I know if I'm honest, there's places in my heart where I don't fully believe. And what does Jesus do? Does he turn him away and says, come back to me when you get full belief. Come back to me when you get that stuff figured out. Go work on yourself and when you're better, come see me. No, of course. Jesus says, bring the boy to me and he heals him. And here we get a taste of glory. See, Jesus gave us a glimpse of what's to come in the transfiguration, but he also gives us a taste of it today. See, when we see a mute or deaf child, we grieve instinctively. Why? Because we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. Kids are supposed to be able to talk so they can say the most cutest and darndest things. That's why we give them the microphone up here. Kids are supposed to be free from pain so they can be kids. When we see someone who's lame and unable to run, we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. We're meant to run and feel the wind blowing by us. When we see a father lose his temper and take it out on his son, we grieve. We know it's not the way it's supposed to be. 
Fathers are supposed to be patient with their child and teach them how to be wise. When we see a storm destroy a city, we grieve because we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. As we've seen Jesus do time and time again, he gives us a taste of what will be. He brings that future glory and it breaks in to the present. We get the taste of the power of, res- of the redemption and the restoration and renewal now because the power of the resurrection is such that it's able to break in today. See, it's no coincidence that right after the transfiguration, Mark makes sure to record this healing miracle. See, every miracle up until this point has pointed to redemption and restoration made possible because of the power of the resurrection. And after this transfiguration, it all makes sense. See, the transfiguration of Jesus points to the resurrection, which is this breaking into the present and showing that sin can be undone. And here Jesus gives us a taste of what's to come. We saw the trajectory of glory and the necessity of trial that leads to glory, and now we get a taste Don't you see Jesus put these bookends of the trial with this uh, amazing transfiguration, this trajectory of our glory, and the other end is this taste of glory. See, we're able to endure trial because we know where we're headed, and he gives us taste to fill us up today. It's like what he's saying, when you suffer and endure many trials, remember, keep your eyes fixed on the trajectory. The turbulence that you feel now is nothing. We will reach our final destination. And if you need a reminder that we're headed that way, Jesus puts these tastes all along the way of glory and redemption so that we don't miss it. So much more could be said of this passage, but for today, let's remember that this passage gives us a trajectory of our glory to come. This is the future for all of those who hope in Jesus Christ. We will be raised like him, and we will glow and radiate just like him. We also, like Jesus, will have to come off the mountain and walk through trials because glory never comes without cost. It's never free. Glory is forged through the fire and through the pressure of of suffering. And yet, we get a taste of it now today. Hear me. The Christian message isn't, hold on, endure one day, You'll be transformed into a better version of yourself. One day, things are gonna be awesome. Yes, that happens. But the Christian message is that redemption actually starts today. The power of the resurrection is such that it breaks into the present today. The future glory actually begins now. And as we start to wrap up, I want to apply this to a triad of some of the greatest hindrances that we face in this life. See, at some point, everybody will struggle with guilt, shame, and fear. These are the great intruders into our lives. We know that they don't belong, and guilt, shame, and fear rob us of love, hope, and joy. This passage puts all of that to rest. See, guilt says this, I've committed an offense, and I am wrong. I am responsible. I am legally answerable. I deserve punishment, and I need forgiveness. The resurrection says to guilt, You are forgiven. Your sins, they've been paid in full. You're not guilty anymore. And your case has been dismissed. Shame says, I am exposed. I don't belong. 
I'm unacceptable, and I'm worthless. I'm dirty and contaminated, and I'm unlovable. Not only have I made mistakes, but I am a mistake. The resurrection says to Shane, no, you are accepted. You are clean. You will receive honor and value and worth and glory. Though you're dimmed now, you will glow. Fear says this, I will fail. Death will end me. Pain will overtake me. I'll never amount to anything. I'll never be somebody. Shame looks fear in the face and says, there's nothing to fear. Fear will be swallowed up in love because Jesus has conquered death and the sting of sin has been removed. The resurrection says, you are somebody and you matter to God. See, the transfiguration is the end of shame. It's the end of guilt and it's the end of fear. So where are you still crushed by fear? Where are you still drowned by guilt? Where do you feel swallowed up in your shame? Jesus says, connect to me by faith. My trajectory can be your trajectory. My victory through trial can be your victory through trial. And you don't have to wait till the end. You can receive a taste of it today. The king's glory can be our glory. Let's pray.